0: We will be reading Matthew 18, verses 15 through 35. In your pew Bible, it's 1,046. Starting verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault, between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Then Peter came to him and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold. And with his wife and children and all they had and payment to be made. and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what he had taken, pla- what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you plead with me. And should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt so also my Heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart.
1: Open as we look at it together this morning. A couple of weeks ago, Jenny and I, in the spirit of springtime, decided that we would look through some of our stuff and purge a bit uh, I don't know if the springtime provokes that in you, but it has this year in me. I looked around, and let's be clear, Jenny is the one who gets rid of stuff. I am the pack rat. So by we, it meant I'm looking around thinking about all the stuff that I need to get rid of, and she's like, yes, 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 get rid of that. In all of that, she too needed to get rid of some things, and I made a suggestion that I had no clue would be um, taken as it was. And my suggestion, I thought, was pretty simple. Uh maybe Maybe we should just have a big yard sale. Uh, Jenny's face turned red she got adamant and she said we will never have a yard sale and I could have not foreseen that kind of reaction but perhaps I should have foreseen that reaction because the story that she told me uh, reminded me of her adamant opposition to yard sales and that was something that happened almost 10 years ago It was actually nine years ago this spring uh, some of you will have been at our church to remember this about nine years ago we had a bunch of ladies to get together and decided they were going to have a church wide yard sale so we talked to Jewel Bailey we got her yard secured and we went up there and they put all their stuff together I have no clue where I was that day Uh, Jenny probably remembers exactly and I didn't bother to ask her where I was on the yard sale day but she had Caleb Caleb was three years old And in the midst of selling all the things that they were selling and uh, watching the people come in and look at the stuff and making prices and selling all of that, she realized at some point during the morning that Caleb was not around. So she looked around and couldn't find him. She got a little frantic and began to wander around and look. And uh, J.J. and Rhonda, J.J., one of my best friends in the whole world, were here at that time. And uh, J.J. got frantic, and when she tells the story, uh, she tells it like when J.J. got really upset because they could not find Caleb, uh, she knew. I overreact often, but J.J. is really upset now, so this is real. My son is gone. Now, I don't know exactly how long he was gone for. She reports it as 15 minutes. You know how things get exaggerated in the years to come? I don't know if he was gone for 15 minutes, but they were frantically looking for a three-year-old that apparently had gotten bored at the yard sale and climbed up into the shrubs in the back of Jill Bailey's yard and thought it was funny that everybody was calling him and they couldn't find him. And so... Jenny was seeking Caleb because he was lost and she to this day says I will not do a yard sale unless you are watching all of our kids and I can concentrate on that uh, because of the fright that she remembers because one of her children was lost. We're in the midst of a study of the Gospel of Matthew and we've come to a section of the study that uh, Jesus has taught us a parable and it shows us how we ought to be concerned about brothers and sisters, family members together in the body of Christ that have gone astray. And when Jenny found Caleb that particular day, talked to her about it again yesterday, there was uh, just this fright that was completely relieved when he was restored To her. So there was relief, there was embracing, and of course there was correction, but not out of anger. There was a correction out of, I don't ever want to lose you because of the love of a mom for a child. And I think that same love is what you and I must have for brothers and sisters in Christ when they go astray. As a matter of fact, from that day till this, just so you know, in the Wade house, there is a rule. You must respond to mommy and daddy's summons no matter what. Uh, Jenny really enforces that rule, which makes hide and seek really bad when she's playing it, right? Uh, She can cheat on it and just ask, where are you? And they have to respond. Uh, But there was correction that happened. And in the body of Christ, there should be a love that we have for one another church. That when a brother or sister goes astray, we would go after them. Today, we're going to look at our pursuit of brothers and sisters who have gone astray, our motive in it, our plan, and our forgiveness when we restore them. If you're just joining us, or perhaps this is your first time at Poplar Spring in a while, we're in the middle of a study of the Gospel of Matthew. And in this section of Matthew, we've been focusing on Jesus' teaching and mentoring of his disciples. In the midst of this teaching, Jesus has told his disciples about a reality that is coming in the Gospel. We're going to see this in just the next couple of chapters, where Jesus is headed to Jerusalem, where he will suffer many things and be killed And on the third day be raised again. Except the disciples really when they're listening to this. I don't think they yet get to the be raised again on the third day. Because they are greatly distressed as we saw in the end of chapter 17 a couple of weeks ago. And so in the midst of that, Matthew records for us in chapter 18 a discourse, a teaching section of Jesus with his disciples. This section has two questions by the disciples to Jesus, and I think it's set up by their concern about we're going to be living together. We're going to be in this kingdom you are talking about. We are going to be in this movement that you've started, Jesus, and you're telling us that you're going to be killed. You're going to be taken away from us. And so I believe that that is probably what prompts the first of the two questions in this text. The second one will come today, but the first one back in chapter 18 verse one, the disciples say, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? In other words, who's in charge when you're gone? And so that prompts Jesus to begin to talk to them about life together in the kingdom. And so last week we started what I told you to be a two-part sermon where we talked about chapter 18, this teaching section of the gospel where Jesus is providing seven truths about life together as disciples in the kingdom that we must understand. Now let me make two notes about that. First, I want you to understand, especially if you're a visitor with us today, Matthew chapter 18 is speaking specifically to believers and specifically to those of us believers who are living life together. So church, this is really, really interesting, but it's really, really important stuff for us to understand because it's teaching us how we are to live together as believers in Christ. Christ. So how do we respond to each other? How do we view ourselves? How do we view each other? How do we view sin in our own lives? How about in the lives of others? And so we talked about these seven truths. We covered five of them last week. Let me just remind you of them very briefly. Number one, we must understand the nature and entrance into the kingdom of God. In verses 3 and 4, Jesus says you must come like a child. and he brings a child and puts him in front of them. Secondly, we must understand how to view others in the kingdom. How do we see others? So not only are we a child that must come to the kingdom, he calls every one of us little ones, and we must have compassion and love for little ones, which leads to number three. We must understand the danger of causing our brothers and sisters to sin. We must seriously think about how we're living and what we do to others and how we live in front of and with others, and there's a danger in causing them to sin. Number four, we must understand the danger of causing ourselves to sin. So We're concerned that we don't cause others, but we're also concerned of our own sin. And then number five, in verses 10 through 14, there was this parable. And I want to start there this morning because I think it sets up our last one. But the fifth one was we must understand the value that God places on each Disciple, The value that God places on each disciple. Jesus' parable in verses 12 and 13 teaches us about the value that God places on those who are in his kingdom. And his call for us to pursue lost and straying brothers and sisters is kind of the background for our text today. That's why I told you last week, it's really one sermon of Christ. We're putting it into two, but it's really just one message that Jesus is showing us this parable which sets the background for the two truths that we will see today about what we must understand about life together. So verse 12, look at it with me. Jesus says, what do you think? Consider this. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And so if he finds the one, the one that he went in search of, the Bible says he rejoices in that. He rejoices more over that one that was found than over the 99 that never went astray. So the illustration is simply this. There's a shepherd who has hundred sheep. One of them goes astray. He leaves the 99, goes after the one because of the value of the one, and he will go after everyone. Why? Look at verse 14. This really sets it up for us. So... Matthew says Jesus quoting Jesus here so it is not the will of my father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish Now I want to make a comment here first was this is about believers Jesus is talking here to his disciples and he's saying it's not the will of God for any disciple any one of God's sheep to perish So again, there's a warning even in this. And I think the warning needs to be heeded by us that we need to be concerned about one another. And so that concern is then over the one that goes astray. We ended last week with me asking you, who is going astray? How are we going after them like our God comes after us? We ought to be thankful that God has pursued us and that He does pursue us in our sin. But we also ought to love one another enough to pursue Each other. So that leads into our text today. If it's not God's will for any one of these little ones, that's any disciple, to perish, then how do we respond when one goes astray? And Jesus moves right into that. So the last two truths that we must understand about life together found here in the rest of this chapter. First one we'll deal with today is this we must understand how to go in search of or confront, if you will. A fellow disciple who sins. A fellow disciple. Look at verse 15. If, there's a conditional clause here. It's not a foregone conclusion. Remember, there were 99 that did not go astray there. But there's one that does. And so Jesus says, if your brother, uh, implied here, just so that we'll know in our context, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now, I think there's a there's a textual variant here, and I've been asked this question before. Does this text reply or or uh, teach us about just our brother or sister who is in sin, or is it in sin against you? We'll not getting into the mechanics of the text this morning. I think that I would say it doesn't really matter what it doesn't matter, it doesn't really mean a difference in what Jesus is teaching for us, whether this text reads, if your brother sins, or if your brother sins against you. I believe that it really is because of the textual variant. I believe it really is if your brother sins. But even if it is your brother sins against you, you're still responsible to go after them. If it's just if your brother sins, then that's more general. And I think talking to the church, you and I better be concerned about our brothers sinning because when they sin, they sin against someone. And they're sinning against the church that they're a part of. So we must pursue them. So this morning, I want to talk to us about how do we go in search of, how do we confront A fellow disciple who sins. Now, let's move. I want to go through these verses, verse 15 through 20, and give you some principles of confronting a brother and sister. Now, church, I have told you this earlier in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. We really are trying to cover an entire, uh, what would would easily be two messages here in two texts. So I want you to invite you, if you would, if you have a pen, piece of paper, write some of this down today because we're going to deal with these couple of verses, these six verses, and I want to give you principles of confronting a brother and sister in sin. Some of them you're going to have more questions about. I invite those. I'd love to talk with you. I even talked uh, after the first service about... Forgiveness, again, there's so much that we could say. I want to give you some principles, and I want you to take them with you, and I want you to discuss them in your growth groups, and I want us to think through what God would have us do as a body of Christ with brothers and sisters who go astray, who sin. So, some principles concerning conf- confrontation, confronting a brother and sister in sin. There are seven of them. Let me give them to you. Number one, confrontation is rooted in love. Love confrontation is rooted in love both of God and of each other. This command is given to us here if your brother sins he says in verse 15 go and tell him his fault. So we're responding in obedience first to God And so it is out of love that we actually obey God. And this verse is really drawing us back to a passage in Leviticus chapter 19, which is speaking to us about the holiness of the people of God. The command in Leviticus chapter 19 verse 2 is to be holy because I am holy. And then down in verses 17 and 18... The Lord Jesus, or the Lord uh, in the law of Moses confronts us about how we are to love one another. So the whole chapter is about being holy and loving one another in the community. And God says this in verse 17 you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but rather you shall rebuke your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him. So Jesus is saying two things for us, or excuse me, God's saying two things for us in Leviticus chapter 19 in the law of Moses. First, you are either going to confront and rebuke your neighbor who is in sin, or you hate him. And so he's putting up for us this idea that if you love God, you will obey. But if you love your neighbor, you will go after him when he's astray. And secondly, he says, if you don't, then it's incurring sin for you. Now, church, this is really important for us to think about because confrontation is not comfortable for us. It's not something that we do. As a matter of fact, it's not something that we do in our culture anymore. We live in this tolerant, must Except anybody, everybody is their own individual, everybody is their own authority. And God is saying, no, there actually is an authority. And if you and I live in community together, we must confront one another. And that is rooted in love for God first because it's obedience, but love for one another. In other words, Leviticus 19 is teaching me, I either confront you when you're astray, I go in search of you, or Leviticus 19 says, I hate you. That's strong language, isn't it, church? But it is love of God and love of each other. As a matter of fact, verse 18 goes on to say, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And you've certainly heard Jesus say that, and love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, is the summary of the law. And so first, confrontation really is rooted in love. It has everything to do with whether you love God and love your neighbor. Secondly, Because it is a command, confrontation is not optional. In other words, I must confront. I must go in search of. It comes out of love, but it is a command that I must obey. So Leviticus 19.7 just said to refuse to confront, my brother is both unloving and he calls it hate in the law. And so Jesus says here, if your brother is one that is astray, if your brother or sister... Uh, brothers, sisters in sin go and tell him his fault between you and him alone I must confront confrontation is not optional for the body of Christ now church let me just stop right there and say a word about membership at Poplar Spring Baptist Church you know that when someone comes to join our church I try to take seriously with them and with us that we are entering into covenant together that we're making some promises together part of those promises is that we commit promise to one another that we'll hold one another accountable. That means that I expect you to care about me enough that if I'm in sin, you would not just talk about me or go somewhere else and and leave, but you would come after me. And we must have that kind of concern for one another. We must have a love for one another that says God's Character, name, kingdom is so great and he values you as his disciples so much that if you are in sin, I am going to come after you and say, because I love you, brother, sister, come back to God. Which is why we ended last week to say, who is going to stray that you know about? We can't just forget them. We can't just act like they never lived. We must go after brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the call of the Word of God. It's part of our covenant membership together. It's part of the promises we make together as believers that we would love one another enough to confront. Because as we are believers in Christ, it's not optional for us. So, number three, if then my motive is love, then my goal must be restoration if my motive is love, my goal is restoration. Look at what he says there in verse 15. Go and show him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So I don't go and confront a brother or sister in in sin who is astray to show how knowledgeable I am, to show how Uh, uh, holy I am to come out of self-righteousness my motive must be love of my brother and my goal then is to gain you to win you back to the Lord so that you would come and live for our great God because I believe our King is so wonderful and so great and so gracious and so awesome and so mighty and so terribly holy I must come after you And my goal is to restore you to right relationship with God and by that a right relationship with us as your church. So church, if my motive is love, then my goal is restoration. Jesus says if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. That's our goal. Do we really protect, desire, anticipate, and work for the unity of the body of Christ? If so then going after one another in sin should not be such a strange or foreign habit for us. Why? Because our motive is love. Our goal is restoration. Number four, the Bible teaches here an order of this. And so the fourth one would simply be minimal exposure is the most loving method. Minimal exposure is the most loving method. Friends, when you know someone is in sin... The Bible shows us here that the way that we confront sin is that we go after them out of love with the goal of restoration and with the idea that we're not going to shame you. We want you to come back to the Lord. So if I know about your sin, I'm not going somewhere else to tell them or to tell anyone else. I'm coming to you. So verse 15 says, you go and tell him his fault, look, between you and him alone. Between you and him alone. So this is the first step. Now, this really flies in the face of our culture, right? So let me just confront what we typically do. What we typically do is tell someone else. We tell our friend, or we think that we'll get to them in a back way, and we'll tell their friend. But the Bible says that's not loving. What is loving is if your friend or if your, your brother or sister in Christ is in sin, you go to them. Now, church, there's probably some confession that we need to do before the Lord because we don't just go to them. You don't tell even your Sunday school teacher, hoping that they'll do it. You don't tell a deacon first. You don't tell your pastor first. You go to them. As a matter of fact, when you come to me and you tell someone about sin, I've said this to some of you. My question, my first question is, have you talked to this brother? Have you talked to this sister? Because the Bible says that the first place that you are to go is to them. Because the idea is minimal exposure there that maybe the Lord will grant repentance and restoration of relationship. And in that case, listen, 95 to 98% of confrontation would not be between anyone but you and the person that was in sin. And you've won your brother. And we have unity and you've shown love with the goal of restoration. So... Certainly, you go to them, you don't tell others. We certainly don't talk about it in bun or on the internet, in our Facebook or Instagram, or we don't even. Here's our habit listen, as churchgoers, we get really spiritual about this stuff, and we can share sin of others through prayer requests. Did you hear about so and so? You really need to pray about them. And we think somehow we add that spiritual prayer that we can gossip about others. Let me give you a quick definition of gossip, which is sinful in the Word of God. It's simply this, confessing other sins for them continually in front of other people, not to them. Right? Confessing other people's sins for them continually. It's just gossip about them. So church, we, when we find a brother who's astray or a sister who's gone astray, we go after them and tell it to them between you and him alone. Now I stop there so much because we don't typically do that. What we would rather do is talk behind their back or sell it to somebody else. Maybe hoping that they'll hear and change. Or maybe just out of hate. Because that's what Leviticus 19 says. Maybe it's passive hate, not just active hate. Maybe we passively hate them because we don't love them enough to confront them. Jesus says minimal involvement or minimal exposure is the most loving method. The ideal solution is you go to a brother just between the two of you and you win your brother. But I know your question, just like Jesus does, what if my brother doesn't turn? Or perhaps this, I think this is the sense of this text. What if he doesn't believe what he or she is doing is sin, or what he or she has done was sinful? So, number five, principle number five, you involve more brothers and sisters as necessary. Involve more brothers and sisters as necessary to win Your brother, again, the motive is love. The goal is restoration. So if it's necessary, then you involve others in verses 16 and 17. Look at what Jesus says. But if he does not listen, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. And then he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 19, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So you go and you take one or two. These may be other leaders or they may be just other believers. The Bible doesn't say that these have to be leaders, but they could be. And so you take one or two with you so that this brother or sister who is in sin might have told you, I don't believe what I'm doing is sin. And you bring one or two others and they then confirm, no brother, this is sin. What you're doing or what you've done, it is sin. And you need to confess and repent and turn from that. So that now there are three witnesses that say, no, indeed, what you're doing is sin. And now you would say, yeah. Listen, here's the other side of that. If you go to one or two brothers and sisters and you say, hey, here's what's going on. I need you to help me confront this brother or sister who is astray. uh, And they look at you and say, you know what, that's not sin. You need to overlook that. Then I think the one who is confronting, we might need to back off of our confrontation and say, Well, maybe I don't need to confront that. Maybe it's to my glory, Proverbs, to overlook a matter. And so I need to just overlook this. And so we take one or two with us. And then what happens even then? He says, tell it to the church. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church so that the church then could either confirm or deny. Here the assumption is the church would confirm this is indeed sin. I want to say a couple of things about that. Uh, the principle here is involving as only as many as necessary in order for the brother to know this is sin and winning your brother. Now, when he says tell it to the church, let me just say to you, I'm not an advocate, nor would I typically bear with someone who randomly stood up on a Sunday morning and said, Hey, I need to share the sin of a brother. I've confronted him, and I just want to, I want to tell this sin to the church. Um, I think there's room here for intermediate steps because we as a church, when Matthew is writing, he uses the word church here, but I don't know that the church was uh, had the officers developed as what we see in the book of Acts. I'm not sure what all of that would have been, but Matthew's writing to a church. He says, tell it to the church. But I think that in our church, just to bring this to Poplar Spring, what we would expect is that someone would come to the leaders of the church who would then make a, a, a wise decision hopefully about how much... And when and how would we even tell the church when we go after this straying brother? So the church indeed may need to be informed that way, but I think that would come through our leaders. But I think there could be an intermediate step here of including elders, uh, which is preferred here when possible. And so let me just say to you, as far as really application for Poplar Spring this morning, we have a shepherd's council who really shepherds your souls. And they come after you and love you and pray for you and say, how can we come beside you? And I think when we came to this step, if you were to take one or two, maybe you come to them and and let them pray about it. Let them talk to this person and come and then make a decision. Because it's not even, I don't think, necessary for us to show every part of the sin. When someone is in sin, it's really serious for us and we want to go after them. And so when the churches involved are informed... I think we would have a habit of saying only what is necessary will be shared so that we all know how to respond, how to pray, and how to pursue, which is what Jesus then talks about at the end of verse 17. Here's how you respond. If you've won your brother, then you rejoice because we would all rejoice about the one who is found. But if your brother does not, then of course we would continue to take this further. And so let me come to the sixth principle of confrontation. Number six, the church is the authority of Christ on earth. The church is the authority of Christ on earth. Look at verse 17. He says, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, in other words, this is important. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now let me say a few words about these verses. Because what Jesus is doing here is giving, I believe, the church an authority. It's the reason when we join the church, we talk about submitting to one another. Do you understand the authority belongs with the church? That's not the way our culture holds it. Our culture is a time where the individual holds the authority. But Jesus in his word has said, there's a great authority that the church holds here. Even with determining this is sin or this is not sin. And so when we bring it to the church, the church decides, no, this is indeed sin. And so in our membership process church, we even talk about submitting to the church because the church is such an authority. We together, not your pastor, not one individual member, but we together indwelled by the Spirit of God, brought together as a corporate body of Christ. There's a great authority here that Jesus gives to Now notice in verse 18, he's quoting exactly what he said to Peter back in chapter 16. And he says it here in uh, chapter 18 to the disciples as a whole as they have told it to the church. And he says, whatever you, that's plural, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I think what Jesus is talking about is the idea of what the church holds about the sinfulness and the straying brother. And so we must not, number one, take this out of context. It's in the context of confronting a brother in sin. So when you get to verse 19 and you read, Again, I say to you, in other words, Jesus is saying, I say it in another way to you. If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. This is not a carte blanche about just ask anything. If two of you are together, then whatever you ask of God, he'll do. It is talking about our confrontation of one another. So he's saying, I think, putting back up to the two or three, That when two of you are agreeing on this, by the Spirit of God, the church holds a great authority. So the church is the authority of Christ on earth. We submit ourselves to the church. That's why we have something called membership. It's why we have something called a covenant as a church. So that you and I hold one another accountable. And there is this framework in which we do so. So the authority of the church in this confrontation. then finally, removal of fellowship. Number seven, removal of fellowship is the rule for unrepentance. Removal of fellowship is the rule for unrepentance. Go back to verse 17. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Caleb was reading this with me just a moment ago and he leaned over as Jessica was reading. He said, isn't it really strange that Matthew uses tax collector there and he was one. Matthew knows how people viewed tax collectors and Gentiles, right? And so here, Matthew is saying to us, if a brother is now saying to you, I will not repent, then the result of that is that you and I are saying, brother, we have told you something is sin. And you are saying, no, I'm going to live this way, even if it means I'm not living for Christ. I understand the church says this is sin, but I'm going to continue my way. And so what Matthew is saying here is, we then, you by the way right there is singular. So it's individually, it's you. This is... Every one of us, every one of you, must have a certain relationship with them. And it is, you have not renounced self, and so you're renouncing Christ. Remember what we said about being a follower of Christ. You either renounce yourself or you renounce Christ. What this brother is saying is, I will not renounce myself. I'm going to keep doing this. So we're saying, you have renounced Christ. And this idiomatic way of saying Gentile and tax collector is just a way that the word says, this is a person who is not in the kingdom of God. They are clueless. They're alien to the kingdom of God. And so we must say, are we going to renounce ourselves? Are we going to renounce renounce Christ? And again, I'll tell you, the authority here is the church interpreting the word of God, bringing you and I to the Father. So if someone will not renounce self, the Bible says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, all of this talk about confrontation leads Peter to ask the second question in the chapter. So go to verse 21 with me. And Peter asks what would be a natural question. He says, if I'm the object of this sin, if someone happens to sin against me, Lord, how many times should I forgive? So the last principle I want you to know in this text that we've seen, these principles of understanding life together in the kingdom, the last one is found in verses 21 through 35, and it is this. We must understand the requirement of forgiveness of other disciples. We must understand the requirement of forgiveness of other disciples. So Peter, who often speaks up, has been his habit here, not only speaks up and asks the question, but you've known those people that ask a question so that they can also answer their own question. Peter asks the question. He doesn't give Jesus an opportunity to answer. He just answers it for Jesus. So look at what he says. Lord, how often will will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? I'm not sure why Matthew has said seven times. I've been in the habit of saying it this way. There's rabbinic teaching that is evidence that they would say you forgive your brother up to three times for a sin. And so here's what I'm just thinking. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us, but I can just imagine Peter's head. Maybe he's saying, you know what, if the rabbis say three times, Jesus, in every time that he's talked about the teaching of the Old Testament or the teaching of the rabbis, he has made it so much greater. So I'll double it and add one, and surely that'll be enough. I don't know why he did it. Perhaps it is that seven is the number of perfection, and so he's going with seven. I don't know why seven, but clearly Peter thinks this is extravagant. So Jesus, up to seven times, and Jesus responds to him in verse 22. Jesus says to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. My response is, if you hear that and you're doing the math in your head, you've missed his point. So it doesn't matter how generous you are. If you're keeping count, Jesus says, if you're keeping record, then you've missed the point of Jesus teaching that we are to forgive. We are a forgiving people because we are a forgiven people. That's the point of the rest of this. We are a forgiving people because we are a forgiven people. And so Jesus then tells a story. And I'll just share with you this morning, church, as we walk through this. This has become one of my favorite parables in the New Testament. Because it shows me again and again, brings me before our Lord to remind me, of the great debt that I have been forgiven, of the amazing generosity of the King who has forgiven me, and of the requirement of my forgiving others who sin against me because the reality is a lot of us like to focus on the sin of others instead of the debt that we were forgiven so this is a great parable you heard it read to you let me just walk through it with you and let you I just want to pull a couple of things out of it that we would see first I want you to see the absolute authority of this king in verse 23 therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants this king who Jesus is saying let's compare the kingdom of heaven to something There's a king. Now, who is that? The king of the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about God the Father. So we know immediately the absolute authority of this king. And he has the authority to settle accounts. Now, church, this is important because what you and I need to know in this idea of forgiveness, in this idea of the kingdom of God, is if there is not a king who has the authority to settle accounts, then you and I really have nothing to worry about. But there is a king who created you, who created me, who one day will hold you accountable. So Hebrews chapter 9 says, it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. You will stand before the king who will settle accounts. And so our ears perk up because there is a creator and there is a day of accounting. And I will stand before him and you will stand before him. So the absolute authority of the king in the story. So what happens? Verse 24, he begins to settle accounts. One servant was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now let me just see if I can put the gravity of this debt before you. This is an incredible debt. One talent, depending on who you read and how you see the way that talents were measured, uh, it was a measure of monetary value. And so one talent would equal somewhere around 20 years of wages for a laborer. One talent. 20 years of wages. So here, Jesus uses the number 10,000 in front of a talent because I think 10,000 is the largest numeral for which a Greek term exists. So if I were to bring that into English, we might would say uh, zillions, right? We know there's a number. Not billions, but zillions. Caleb would correct me when I get home and say, Dad, there's actually a Google. You missed it. But we'll just say zillions in here because that's a large amount of money. And so Jesus says here, there are 10,000 20 years wages worth that this guy owes. If you were to bring talents into our day, into our, our measuring scales, put this in perspective, it would be somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 tons if it were measured in silver. 300 tons of silver. This guy has an incredible debt that he owes. And verse 25 just confirms, since he could not pay it, they are going to sell him and his family, which was suitable, acceptable for a king to do. Now, if you read in the, uh, in the history and the time of Jesus, you might would sell a slave. And if you were to get a high price for a servant that you would sell as a slave, you might would get one talent. This man owes 10,000 talents. And so the king says, well, I'll just sell you and get some. I'll recoup some of it. And so... Look at verse 26 with me. The servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Do you see this ridiculous nature of the promise? There's no way this man could ever pay everything. But I want you to see the amazing generosity because the king didn't just give him more time. He didn't say, Okay, well, I will give you time to pay it. Look at the generosity of the king. Out of pity for him, verse 27. We've seen that word before. Jesus, it's been used of Jesus multiple times in Matthew's gospel. Out of compassion. Haven't we just focused on that in Matthew's gospel? Jesus is a God of compassion. And out of compassion, the master of the servant released him and forgave the dead. You're done. I release you and I cancel the debt. Now, I don't know if you've ever owed a ridiculous amount of money like that. Perhaps you do right now. I doubt any of us owe that much or we would probably be uh, in prison somewhere already. But owing zillions, and the master says, debt canceled. Can you imagine the freedom and the relief walking away free with no debt? And this man does so. Because of the amazing generosity of the king, who looked at him with compassion and said, I'll cancel the debt. Now, two things the freedom that I want you to think about, but also think about the king. What kind of king must he be to just look at a servant and say, zillions erased? What kind of king would do that? But this king does. And so he walks away free. Unmerited, unimaginable generosity of this great king. Now as we continue on in the story, here is the point of the story because we see the arrogant inconsistency of the slave. So verse 28 changes scenes, doesn't it? Now the slave is out. The servant is there. He found someone, another servant, who owed him a hundred denarii. Let's put that back in perspective. A denarius was uh, uh, about a day's wage for a common laborer. So this man owed the servant three to four months' salary. Not undoable, but still a significant debt, right? It's not something just to wave off. He owed him about three to four months' worth of salary. But this man takes him. Look at what it says. Verse 28. He seized him. I think, if you picture this, he began to choke him. He seized him by the throat and demanded of him, pay what you owe. I have just been cleared of zillions of dollars of debt. And you owe me a couple of hundred or thousand dollars. Pay what you owe. Can you imagine the arrogance of that? And yet, this servant has the same exact cry, minus the ridiculous promise in verse 30, Excuse me, in verse 29. Have patience with me and I will pay you. He doesn't make the ridiculous promise. I'll pay you everything. He says, have patience. Have pity. Would you give me some time? And his servant wouldn't even give him. It's not that he wanted him to forgive the debt. It's that he wanted to give him some time. And this servant, not not forgiving the debt, he wouldn't even give him time to pay the debt. The arrogance of this inconsistent slave. Let me say this to you. Listen. We... We tend to forget the gravity of our own sin when we're focused on the sin of others, don't we? We tend to forget the amount of debt that God has forgiven us when our eyes are on the little bit of debt that somebody else owes us. And we would rather be little mini kings in our own kingdoms than understand that we live before a great king who has forgiven us the debt we have. We tend to forget the gravity of the debt of our own sin when we're focused on the sin of others. And so to wrap this story up, beginning in verse 31, I want you to see the angry justice, the angry justice of the king. So some other servants saw this injustice. They made the king aware of it. And so his master, in verse 32, summons him. And he says to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant? As I had mercy on you, there's the point of the story. When you and I see what we have been forgiven of freely, we are more likely and called to and required to by this text to forgive others. And so what happens in verse 34, And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers. The SV softens the language there. Unfortunately, the language there is to the torturers. My friends, if you and I end up not in the king's kingdom, there will be eternal punishment. So let's not soften it here. The punishment of God will be eternal, and it will be torment, and it will be torture. And so I end with a warning in verse 35. Here's the story. So also, so also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother. From your heart. Friends, confrontation in life together is going to require us to forgive. And listen here this is what Jesus is saying. Refusal to forgive when you're sinned against is evidence that you're not even in the kingdom. And so, the serious question that I must ask you this morning is are you holding your right to have a debt? Held over someone that's a brother or sister in here and willing to hold out that right to the exclusion of renouncing yourself? Are you willing this morning, with those of us who are believers in Christ, to spend some time focusing on the massive debt that was forgiven us and look at brothers and sisters in Christ and say, I love you enough. And I'm going to humble myself before my God enough to come after you when you go astray. But to forgive you because my goal is restoration. Even if the sin is against me. Notice what he says in the end. If you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Believers, this starts in our belief in God. It starts in our worship of God. It starts in our realization of what God has forgiven us. Stand with me, heads bowed and eyes closed. Friends, this text is heavy because it calls us to step out of our comfort and really live life together. You see, you and I, if I were just to be honest with you this morning, we don't really live life together very much. We love to keep our our lives separated. We love to keep our Our card's close. We don't really like to get other people into our business. But living life together as believers means that we're one because we serve one king. And we invite one another. Speak into my life. If I go astray, listen, I'm telling you this honestly. If I go astray, I hope you love me enough to come after me. And if you go astray, I hope I love you enough to come after you. But it won't be comfortable. It's messy sometimes to do so but love must be our motive and restoration must be our goal. And we must go into this kind of living life together with the idea that I've been forgiven much, so I'll freely forgive. Knowing that next time it may be you needing to come after me. And so we live life together in the kingdom for the glory of the King.